This meeting is being recorded. Can everyone see my screen? Can everyone hear me? Ali, you're muted. We can't hear you. Oh, sorry. Can everyone hear me now? So, just to start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what is your experience long-term and career-wise when it comes to graduate student mental health? Well, I, I'm going to tell you a bit of a personal and, and then get into the professional aspect of it. So, I, I'm a faculty member here at University of Kentucky in the Department of Toxicology and Cancer Biology. I have a long history with the University of Kentucky. I was an, actually an undergraduate here. And then I decided to stay for grad school here. So I've been here a long time. As an undergraduate, I was a biotechnology undergraduate and I started experiencing some mental health issues myself. I'd say, you know, around my sophomore year sometime, I started developing some pretty significant test anxiety and it caused me some pretty significant problems. And so by my junior year, I had actually a girlfriend at the time who encouraged me to go and, and seek some therapy about, you know, around this issue. And so I did. And the, the treatment helped significantly. I'll say that. And so by the time I was finishing my undergrad career, I was pretty much over that. And I was pretty much able to handle it sort of on my own through other coping mechanisms that I developed. And, you know, other outlets of, you know, exercising more and doing more things other than school all the time. So that happened. And then I went to graduate school. And as we're going to talk more about as we go through this conversation, graduate school is tough. And so it's then that I didn't really know what it was at the time, but that's where I started developing some imposter syndrome or at least recognizing that something was going on. I still didn't really know what it was until later. I started understanding that I had some imposter syndrome issues. Certainly lots of stress. That was brought on just by all the pressures of graduate school. And then later, you know, as I went through graduate school, I had a lot of concerns about career path, what in the world I was going to do, and job prospects within those career paths. And then, you know, going on as a postdoc, it just gets even more stressful, unfortunately. But finding a job also becomes more stressful. So it's just a tough environment. It's just tough. And it only gets tougher. <laughs> it only gets tougher, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then, you know, fast forward, and I'll tell you the, the professional aspects. So it was about 2016, 2017. I was working with a, a colleague, Dr. Teresa Evans at the University of Texas, um, Health Science Center in San Antonio on a couple different career development type projects related to graduate students, academic trainees. And we started just kind of informally talking about issues that we saw in our graduate students, you know, around mental health. And we were like, you know, what's really known about this? So we went and tried to find some literature reports or whatever about it to see what was really known and not much. I mean, there was not a lot at all. And certainly there was no real conversation being had about this, like at a national, international level. So long story short, we decided to put together a survey. We had kind of low expectations for it, although 
The main goal was to try to elevate the conversation around the topic. And so in the end, we, we ended up getting more than 2,000 respondents from many different institutions, several different countries, across several different disciplines. And we found in our population on um, some clinically validated scales for anxiety and depression that about 40-ish percent of our populations scored in the moderate to severe range of anxiety and depression. Now, that's not to say that they were clinically, that it's not clinically diagnosed, obviously, because it was not done in a clinical setting, but that was the data. It was more in the non-male population, so females, transgender populations had higher anxiety and depression, and we found high correlation with work-life balance and mentorship. So people who identified as having a poor work-life balance were more likely to have higher levels of anxiety and depression, and same for mentorship. If you had sort of a negative mentorship relationship, you were more likely to have moderate to severe anxiety and depression. Depression is a mental health disorder in which the person suffering from it experiences persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness. The depressed individual may develop loss of interest in activities affecting their capacity to function in their everyday life. Whereas anxiety is characterized by persistent excessive worries and a general assumption that something bad will happen. Unlike stress, anxiety does not go away when the stressor is removed. Although depression and anxiety disorders are different, they may present together. People with depression often experience symptoms similar to those of an anxiety disorder, while people who experience anxiety attacks may have feelings of depression afterwards. Thank you so much for that sweeping introduction. So <laughs> then it sounds like the current state of graduate student mental health is pretty rough, but work by groups like yours and others have at least started shining a light on that problem. And there have been renewed discussions around it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I, you know, so we ended up publishing this in Nature Biotechnology in early 2018, and, and it immediately went viral. It just kind of blew up on Twitter and other social media, and Nature did several other follow-up stories, and there was a lot of media that picked it up. The paper that Dr. Van de Ford is referring to is titled Evidence for a Mental Health Crisis in Graduate Education, published in Nature Biotechnology in March 2018. And a couple other studies that came out around that same time certainly elevated the conversation. And so now I think there's much more conversation around this. And then as we know, and we'll maybe talk about this more, you know, now it's the situation's even worse because we've gone through just a mess of things over the last two-ish years. We kind of started with Lots more issues around systemic racism and social justice, very important topics and just horrible issues that happen that, you know, we're aware of. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and man, talk about, you know, stress, anxiety caused by the pandemic. And then what did we do to try to lessen the issues of the pandemic? We isolated ourselves, which is like the opposite thing you want to do if you have mental health concerns. You need to be around people, supportive people that can help. And in many circumstances, PIs or those in charge of trainees would just sort of be like, well, you could do data analysis or you could start writing them papers. Like 
completely ignoring the fact that the normal world has just been sort of dramatically shaken up as long as the focus remained on make sure you're productive it seemed like taking care of the trainees as people was very much put on the back burner right again we might get into that more later but I, that's certainly one issue i have with mentors too often mentors don't have regard for the personal aspects of people they're just focused on the science and, and in some regard you know that's their job that's what they should do but but to help address this situation mentors certainly need to become much more involved in the personal aspects of the people that work on absolutely that makes makes a lot of sense so taking a step back then maybe connecting what you went through personally and the results of the study that you and the others published how do you think we got to this place? What do you think are the factors that lead to such a high prevalence of anxiety and depression, not clinical levels, but what one would self-report as anxiety and depression in this specific population? Yeah, you know, it's everything. I, I mean, graduate school is just a challenging thing. I mean, it's hard. And yeah, I mean, it should be to a certain extent, right? I mean, the academic and the intellectual components of it should be challenging because you're earning a PhD or you're earning some, you know, higher level degree. So you should be intellectually challenged to do that. There's all kinds of things related to graduate school within the system, I guess, that contribute to the stress and anxiety and depression that don't necessarily have to be there. Right. And, you know, the issues around good mentorship, career prospects and career preparation, there's just super high expectations. The cultural and societal issues also play a role, too. And, and then everybody has their own personal things they're dealing with in graduate school. I don't know what the average age is, but you're in your mid 20s on average, I'd say start to getting to late 20s and as you get you know farther into adulthood you just start experiencing more personal complexities and that just creates challenges and stress and that adds on top of the challenges you face in graduate school so it's just everything that makes sense so a combination of high expectations from a lot of parties along with pressure from just normal daily life and I think something you touched on in your personal story, a lot of uncertainty about what's going to go forward. And in the absence of good mentors to step in and help clear up some of those things, the weight can just be overwhelming and sort of over the years uh, crush a person. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, getting back to the expectation piece, uh, you know, we come into graduate school and it, it seems like and it, it still seems like this, that. Graduate programs, sort of in our world, which is more biological, life sciences, probably some physical, chemical sciences, the, the training that you get in graduate school really is mostly geared toward preparing you to be a faculty person. I mean, that's what your mentors are, and that's what they mostly want you to be. But not everybody's going to do that, and not everybody wants to do that. I think a lot of us, me included, when I went to graduate school, we came in knowing, you know, that 
PhD people that we saw were mostly faculty people. And that, I guess, is what we expected to do. But we didn't know that the job prospects were just so terrible. And it's right. not until much later that people realize that. And then they start scratching their head about, well, shoot, what am I going to do? That makes sense. Absolutely. And, but but then a lot of PIs, you know, they still have this expectation that you're going to be a faculty person. And so I think a lot of graduate students, this happened to me, you feel a ton of pressure to do that. And you worry because you see that there's not a lot of jobs out there. And then you worry even more if that's not what you want to do at all. Right. There's very little guidance for folks who aren't interested in the traditional trajectory of an academic career. Oftentimes, you just end up hoping that you have somebody in your network that has any clue for how one would transition to sort of this institutionalized world to a more, you know, other career paths, essentially. I feel like that's one thing that I've noticed is that more and more schools are starting to create at least seminars or presentations or have offices that are driven towards telling students about alternative paths in academia, <laughs> which, you know, yeah. for some people are not the alternatives, they're actually their main interests. But yeah. there is a strong unspoken thing like, if you can, you should become a tenure track professor, because that's the greatest thing to do in the world. And given the success rates, you know, both for reasons in our control and not in our control, that's very low. So it's almost like there's an existential cliff in the future. And you feel like, what am I going to do when I approach that? Is there anything I can do to avoid it? Right. I totally agree with you. And, you know, I, I think the situation there is better. So I, I got my PhD in 2008. And so just comparing then to now, the situation is much better. Like you just said, there are many institutions that have seminar series, symposia, even whole offices, you know, like career center career development offices that help graduate students navigate their current situation in graduate school, but also prepare them to do whatever it is they want to do, which is great. Not very many of those existed before, I don't know, 2008, 10, something like that. But there's more. And so it's getting better. And I think the culture, the academic culture, even at the mentor PI level is getting better too. But we still have a long way to go. Absolutely. Now I'm going to hand things off over to Naira. She's going to ask a couple more questions. Awesome. So really great great points mentioned so far. And one question that I can't help but ask, you know, personally, I've been having conversations with multiple potential mentors. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest things for me is to have multiple options when I graduate for career. And, you know, you guys discussed kind of the delicate balance between mental health and having certainty of anything, really. A lot of the science could be uncertain, but if you're certain that you're doing something on the side that's going to benefit your career, I imagine it could have really great benefits. I've heard from a lot of senior graduate students that it's more productive to do something on the side consistently that you love to do that comes naturally to you along with your science. However, I talk to other mentors that are 
more experienced and they tell me that yes you want to do things on the side and there's room to do that but you also really want to focus on the science to be successful so what i want to hear from you is where is the delicate balance between focusing on the science enough to do a really great job and at the same time using time outside of lab to prepare for the other career path that you actually want to do after your response, I'll kind of get more into how this makes any sense. Like, why are you even in a PhD then? <laughs> and I always hear this argument, but it's like, we're here to establish credibility and learn critical thinking. And we just, we want to do other things after, but go ahead. Thanks. That, great points. Um, so the balance, you know, I, I think ultimately at the end of the day, you, you enroll in a, a PhD program and what's going to get you out. The thing that's going to get you out is being in the lab, getting results, publishing a couple papers. And so you got to focus on a lot of attention on that because as we know, research takes a long time and it's hard and much of it doesn't work. So you have to repeat it over and over again. And so it's just time consuming. But certainly, you know, you have to focus on preparing for whatever it is you want to do. And if it's being a faculty person, you know, do more research if you want to try to publish a couple more papers or one other than might the average graduate student might publish or whatever. But even if you want to be a faculty person, you still need other skills. Like you need leadership skills. You need to be able to do finances and whatever else, communication skills. So you need to be spending time focusing on those things too. I really think that there is a fine balance but you do have to pay attention to these other things. Go to a couple seminars, maybe one a week or whatever. Go to a symposium on career development once a year at least. But you mentioned some things that I'm a big advocate of, and that's actually getting real experience in whatever it is you want to do. So if you want to be a freelance writer or you know a science writer of any kind, you should try to get some actual, honest-to-goodness science writing experience. So what I have had, like a handful of students do, is I have connected them with our PR office. And they have been able to write PR releases on science coming out of the medical center. And so they, they can put their name on that PR release, right? Because they wrote it. And, you know, that's great experience. You can do that kind of thing, you know in the evening while you're watching the newest release on Netflix or whatever. So it, it doesn't have to take up a lot of time that you would be in the lab. And, and even if you don't want to be a science writer, that kind of activity still builds a lot of skills. But just kind of envision whatever it is you want to do, and you have to do some of it. Because at the end of the day, people want to hire people who have done whatever it is they're hiring for. You know, they want to hire people with some kind of experience. So you need to try to get that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting when it comes to work-life balance. And I've seen kind of in your paper how that plays a big role in either worsening mental health or maybe improving it if you're really good at managing everything. But, you know, the notion, the idea of you've been in lab for X number of hours, it's probably seven or more, and then you come home and you have to do more work, right? Professional development, whatever it is you're doing on the side. And there's this, you know, concept that you discussed earlier where it's like, 
We aren't, as graduate students, necessarily trained for other jobs, even though there now exists government and private sector programs that are made to take people fresh out of their PhD, train them in some type of craft, whether that's management consulting or science policy, and then turn them into these brilliant, <laughs> you know, contributors to society that, that aren't necessarily PIs. But it's like, why would we go about doing a PhD if it isn't necessarily a hundred percent of what we're going to be doing in, in the future. And there's a lot of incredible transferable skills that people aren't aware of. And I think one interesting thing to think about is, well, where is the solution? Is it adding career development, better mentors, and enhancing perspectives about work-life balance? Is that all it's gonna to take to fix this problem? Or is it going to require more systemic or dare I say, maybe national change in policy from the NIH, the NSF, the national academies, all of this guidance for schools to improve this. What are your thoughts? Well, man, that's a lot. Well, I want to start by saying, you know, responding to the why go to grad school. If you want to be a science writer or I don't know what else, a consultant, can't you just get a master's degree and do that? And sure, I mean, people do. And people who have masters of science of some sort are consultants. They're great. It's great. So why pursue a PhD? I think for those of us who pursue a PhD, we have a deep love of science. We have a deep passion for challenging ourselves. I think. Sort of being very deep thinkers and just have a passion, a very deep passion for learning. And I think there's a lot to say about the differences between a PhD program and a master's program, because you learn to think far deeper, much more critically, much more analytical than you do in a master's program. And it goes deeper into the science. And certainly doing your dissertation, you become like the world's expert in whatever it is you're studying, right? And so you go really deep into that. So then you go out into the world and get a job being a consultant and you have all that deep knowledge about science that you can translate to almost any other science discipline, really. I just think you can't get that from a master's level. And I think that that has extraordinary value in the marketplace. And I think that not enough employers realize that yet, but I think that PhD level trained people, they're a wealth of knowledge and skills and expertise that can do so many things. So that's why I think you should get a PhD if you want to. What was sort of the second part of the question? So is improving the way graduate programs go about career development and mentorship and work-life balance going to solve the problem of graduate student mental health since they do experience more depression and anxiety than the average population. Um, if so, or if not, I guess, can we do more nationwide policy changes that should apply to all universities to maybe prevent the problem systemically? This is my thought on this. So I think certainly from a federal level, more needs to be done. They have such a strong position in which all of our academic institutions 
research institutions run off the back of the federal government's funding, right? I mean, it's huge. They have such a powerful position and they should use that position to help drive change. And so if you think about, you know, many labs run off of NIH R01 level type grants, right? So what if the NIH instituted a policy where within an R01, the principal investigator had to write up a mentorship plan and a trainee support plan? You know, how am I going to really mentor this trainee? How am I going to support them, support their career development, support their career path desires, support them from a psychosocial standpoint? And not only me, how's my university going to do that? What are the resources at the institution that this trainee can connect to that will help them develop? I think that would be a good step. I, I think that that would help hold mentors accountable, I think, to actually having a plan. I know that there's the individual development plans, and those I, I don't think are really required at the you know, at the are a one level, but I think this mentorship plan is different than the individual development plan, which mostly the, the onus is on the trainee to do those and not so much the mentor. I think also at the federal level, they could certainly support more research around mental health issues and support interventions that could be tried to address the issues. And they need to be more vocal advocates around mental health challenges and the things that need to be done to address it because they hold such powerful positions. But at the end of the day, the issues are really coming from within our universities. So even if the federal government puts policies into place, we all know that there's going to be ways around some of those policies or th there's going to be some people that still don't step up and do what they're supposed to do, right? So I, I think institutions need to do more. The institutions are the power players in sort of holding their faculty and mentors accountable. And I think they can do that in a lot of different ways. One thing that we've talked about at our institution is if a mentor does something bad, whatever that is, perhaps the institution could revoke their ability to have graduate students for some period of time or forever if they did something really bad and or until they go through some remediation training or program and they can show that they are remorseful and that they uh, are going to do better. And the other thing I, I think our institutions need to do better about rewarding good mentorship and really holding up those that are good as good role models. And you can do that through awards, but other ways to recognize good mentorship that can be seen as good role modeling. And certainly our institutions need more mental health services and resources for graduate students, PhD trainees, and career services, as we discussed earlier. And then they need to work to remove barriers to accessing these things. For mental health services, I know at my institution, many times graduate students say they have a really hard time 
connecting with the mental health services on campus. So our my institution is a majority undergraduate campus. And so those services are mostly taken up by undergraduates, which they need also, but graduate students are overlooked many times, I think. Then of course, if you try to go outside of campus to try to get services, there's all kinds of health coverage issues. And so that needs fixed too. It's a multi-level issue in terms of how to fix it and who's sort of, you know, players involved in trying to address the situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I also agree with you in, in the sense that, yes, the federal government can do things, but only so much. And that a lot of it is about local change and local advocacy. So. One thing that we're also really curious about is how can a graduate student listening to this start advocating for their peers, for themselves, and what maybe key stakeholders do they have to tap into people that they should talk to to really get the help they need or change one aspect of the culture in their institution to do better and feel better? Yeah, so at, at, at my institution, there's a graduate council. So there's elected representatives from across the university that's set on this. And theoretically, they have the ear of uh, the graduate school dean, hopefully also at least the provost. We're in a provost model. A provost is a chief academic officer that oversees an institution in terms of its educational experience to the student body. The difference between a provost and a dean is that a dean's responsibilities lie at the departmental level, whereas the provost oversees the entire institution. Although the role of provost is changing and depends on the institution, they often fill the role of chief academic officer and help the university's president develop policies, manage budgets, and make faculty and tenure decisions. So getting involved in graduate council, or at least being aware of it, being aware of representatives of something like a graduate council, and you know, meeting with those people, relaying concerns or ideas for change, I think that is very important. Once you identify an issue and you identify a path toward hopefully addressing that issue, you got to push for it. And sometimes you have to push harder than others. But I think that you or your colleagues have to be willing to fight for what it is you need, I think. The other thing, and I'm in the College of Medicine, and I know this has happened in a couple other colleges, Graduate students within colleges have formed their own graduate student group. And so they get together and they organize career development sessions and talks and workshops and seminars. But they also talk about issues that are going on in the college and ways to fix those. And then they meet with the associate dean for biomedical education and they talk about those things. We also have another college level committee for trainees that I'm on, and there's representatives from that group on that committee, and we frequently talk about issues that graduate students have that come up through that student group at this committee, and the Associate Dean for Biomedical Education is there, and she hears those, and she can take those to the Dean and talk about them. 
and we have actually seen some things that have actually happened, some good things in the college that sort of came through that group. I think those can have a real impact. Yeah, certainly. I think it's really interesting and empowering that graduate students do have a voice and that if they use it and they organize in the right ways and they, they talk to members of administration, they absolutely will be heard as people that are responsible for creating knowledge and they're supported by the institution in, in doing so and the institution is receiving the products of their hard work near the end and the whole time they're there actually. I think it's really important to recognize that and implement it and use it to get the things you need. One thing you actually talk about in your publication which I found really cool was people's perception of their mentors and how that relates to their anxiety depression status and you know one way we could probably think about how to combat this problem is start with finding supportive mentors that maybe aren't necessarily your principal investigator that is helping you with your project but also finding ways to grow your mentorship circle if you aren't necessarily getting the kind of support you need to thrive with your science. So what have been some strategies you've seen people take on when it comes to growing their mentorship circles or even confronting their science mentors with the problems they've been having and trying to find solutions? Yeah, I, you raise a fantastic point. And, and I think everybody needs multiple mentors. Even if you have a strong, positive, supportive mentor who's your principal investigator, who's you know great scientist, great at science, but also supporting your career development needs, you should still have other mentors because it's going to expand your network, it's going to expand your thinking around science and career development. It's just going to be good. But if you don't have a great PI who's supportive of your personal and career development needs, it's like a must to have other mentors who can support whatever needs you have in terms of your personal needs. And all these things connect, right? I mean, it's not like they're silos. They're all connected. But for your career development, you need someone who can help you be supportive of whatever career path you're going to take. I'm sort of a mentor to a lot of people in that situation, and not always does their primary mentor know that, and they ask for confidentiality, and I respect that. But I think that is the biggest challenge. Like if your mentor is not supportive and you're fearful of them knowing that you are looking at other options or whatever, you have to be empowered to go get what it is you need. If it's one thing that people listening today take away from this, it's empowerment is key. You should be empowered to do whatever it is you want to do and to go out and seek whatever help you need to do that. Whether that's in the mental health space, the personal psychosocial space, or the career development space. It's your life, it's your career. You need to do what you got to do to be happy and successful, however you define it. So I think sometimes you have to do a lot of legwork to seek out people who are gonna help you 
but sometimes they're easier to find than you think. You just have to kind of pay attention to the way people talk about careers in science and have some meetings. And you can have meetings with people without really saying, hey, can you be my mentor? Until you really, really know that they would be supportive of you and what it is you want to do. And these things can take time. It's not going to happen in one meeting and it's not going to happen overnight. You got to invest some time in this kind of Yeah, absolutely. And really quickly before we wrap up, for those listening to us, hopefully in the future, (laughs) informational interviews are my silver bullet personally for finding mentors and getting clarity about uncertainty about what I want to do. And I think when it comes to finding empowerment, like you were saying, It's really great to be able to connect with grad students, even if they're at a completely different university through national groups. An informational interview is an informal conversation you can have with someone working in a field of interest to you. It is an effective research tool to get insider information about the field, organization, or position you are interested in and develop your professional network, which can lead to job opportunities in the future. For example, we're a fan of the National Science Policy Network. Not only are they focused on science policy, but they bring together grad students from all over that have taken career steps towards working in science policy along with their graduate study. I've talked to multiple grad students that are farther along than I am, and they're like, yeah, you know, I was able to do this short part-time internship while I was finishing up my PhD, and I got the experience I needed. And at the same time, I was able to finish my dissertation and now I have a position at X. It was a think tank or someplace at the NIH or the FDA, wherever it is. I really think the best first step is to connect with graduate students that have the career path that you want or people that you find on LinkedIn that maybe have gotten a PhD and work in a place that you want to work and talking to them over coffee. And like you said, that's going to take some time. So don't be discouraged if you get rejected. (laughs) Uh, But having multiple, multiple conversations with really strong candidates for a mentor that are maybe farther along in their career. And it's interesting. Personally, I have a mentor from the industry, but I only called him my mentor maybe like a year in to talking back and forth and you know having multiple discussions etc um and one interesting thing he mentioned to me was like you know you're the only one keeping this going right if you get bored of this discussion and you don't need my guidance anymore like that's okay and i was like it's so interesting so it's really about your initiative as the grad student to to go out and and build those relationships but Any final thoughts before we go? This has been such a wonderful discussion. Well, I want to agree with you about informational interviews. For years, I think since 2014, I've run a career development class in our graduate school focused around many of these conversations we've had today. And one of the assignments that I give people that take that class is doing an informational interview. And it's so fascinating because a lot of times students will come in uh, and and they'll hear about these and they're like, what, what is this? And I can remember one student in particular saying, no, this is not real. Like people don't really do this. And then that same person ended up having like seven informational interviews and she actually got a job because of some of the informational interviews she did. So she expanded her network. She learned a lot more about the career path she was interested in. And she never asked for a job. 
and you should never ask for a job in an informational interview. But one thing led to another. One person suggested that she talk to this other person and it kind of went down a rabbit hole and she got a job. But these things are so powerful. And a lot of times people are like, well, nobody's going to talk to me. Nobody's going to want to talk to me. But the thing that we have to recognize is that if you have a PhD and you're out there, odds are you went through these same struggles, right? And so if you're sitting there in a consulting job as a PhD, you would love to talk to a second or third year graduate student who's contemplating going into consulting and share your knowledge about how you did it, what you should do to help get you set up to do it. And so people do, they love to, to help other graduate students. So I think those are very powerful. And I'll just reiterate two things. One, what you said, and I frequently say this too, it's really on us to do whatever it is we want to do. Whatever career path we want to pursue, we're the ones that have to work hard and do the things that we need to do to get there. You know, certainly we can have mentors, we can have network people that can help with connections and help guide us there. But we're the ones that's going to have to do the work to get there. So that's one thing. And then second, on the topic of mental health, if you have any issues at all, you should be empowered to go and seek any help that you think you might need. That's counseling, you know, just talking to whoever you feel comfortable talking with. But go and seek that because you would not believe how much better you're going to feel later once you start getting help and getting that addressed. I have been there and I can tell you that it's so much better once you start recognizing the problems and getting help to resolve them. Yeah, absolutely. And in the description box, we'll have links to a few resources where people could get started. But thank you so much, Dr. Vanderford. This has been such an enlightening discussion. And of course, we'll drop the link to your paper below. Nina, you've disabled screen sharing. Hey, I just made you co-host. <sighs> I'm sorry, can everyone go on mute? I think someone's stuck in the waiting room. <sighs> You're breaking up again, Ellie. <sighs> the recording has stopped. Politics Under the Microscope would like to thank the National Science Policy Network, NSPN, Science Education and Policy Association, SEPA, and the Rockefeller Inclusive Science Initiative, FreeSea, for their support.